The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Uh, I guess you do have a credibility problem as well. I think a lot of Kurds were offended by the association with Mr. Ozda and with the um, with the appropriation of such a harsh language. And uh, some of them did not, I mean, I guess some of them did not go back to the polls. Uh, about 325,000 less people went to the polls in Istanbul. And it is estimated that about uh, a, a, a good chunk of those, a million Istanbulites who did not go to the polls in the first round also were Kurdish. So um, that didn't work. I mean, ultimately, uh, or maybe you can say it did work because it raised Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu's share of the vote to 48%. And Mr. Erdogan got, got 52%. But it was probably, again, as you said, maybe too little too late or not very convincing. Uh, so in my judgment, uh, by the second round, the um, fate or the result of the elections were uh, basically a foregone conclusion. I'm Serafine Janani, Legal Fellow at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 31st, 2023. On Sunday, May 28th, Turkey held a bitterly contested runoff election with incumbent presidential candidate Recep Tayyip Erdogan winning re-election against opposition candidate Kemal Kilic Darolu. I sat down with Soli Ozel, senior lecturer at Kader Haas University in Istanbul and a columnist at Habertürk Daily Newspaper to discuss what was at stake in this election and the future of Turkey as Erdogan's next five-year term marks his 25th year in higher office. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 31st, Erdogan wins re-election in Turkey. You're in Istanbul right now, and that's actually where I'd like to begin. Istanbul is home for you. It's where you probably saw the runoff elections this past Sunday when the final votes came in, when the final results were announced. And I'm sure you probably saw some of the city light up in celebration. Yes. The other half would have lit up in celebration if the, the, the reverse was true. So. Well, so let's let's learn more about that. I want to know more about the mood in Istanbul, both on Sunday and since then, among supporters of President Erdogan and also supporters of the opposition candidate, Kemal Kilic Terulu. 
Well, to begin with, I mean, yesterday and today, the city is vibrant, the traffic is awful, tourism is expanding, or is um, so tourist buses are all over the place, which means it makes our bad traffic even worse. Uh, and uh, and for Sunday, I mean, my neighborhood is was predominantly an opposition neighborhood, and of course the um, the uh, supporters of Mr. Erdogan celebrated until. Uh, Maybe two two thirty in the morning, honking their horns and and um, making a lot of noise. And I suppose one should expect or does expect such things to happen. It was a bitterly contested election um, in an, in a very polarized environment. Uh, everybody knew that was much was at stake uh, in these elections. And as I said, if if Mr. Kalistaroğlu won. I'm sure there would have been celebrations in those neighborhoods which supported him as well. Whether or not it would have been the same kind of celebration, I really, I really cannot say. So for the opposition supporters, or at least for some of them, this was a bitter disappointment. Although after the elections, the presidential elections, first round results, and the results of the parliamentary elections that took place at the same time on the 14th of May, I guess uh, one should not have been that surprised. I personally was not, but it is, you know, hope like hope. Hope is eternal, so you still wonder. Well, maybe you were a bit a bit too pessimistic. Maybe some miracle could happen. Miracles don't happen, and the result was uh, basically as I expected. And this time around, most serious pollsters got the result uh, correctly as well. Now, uh, I would have expected personally for the opposition candidate to resign. He doesn't seem to have any intention to do so. And there is, of course, um, a very celebratory, victorious mood uh, in the president's camp. His um, speech, uh, both in Istanbul and in Ankara, were pretty defiant. Uh, And uh, so we're in for uh, a new uh, Erdogan term. And... uh, this will begin in the, in the midst of a actually pretty severe uh, economic crisis uh, in an environment of a very bifurcated, very divided society. So you really touched on basically everything I want to ask you, but let's back up a second. You said this was a bitterly contested election, that there was yeah. a lot at stake this election. So let's tease that out. What was at stake this election for the Turkish people? Because it was competitive in a way that the presidential election from 2018 was not. Yeah. Well, for your for the listeners who may not follow matters Turkish that closely, this year is the centennial of the Turkish Republic. And uh, because of that coincidence, uh, many people, including myself, many commentators, presented this uh, election between two very different uh, candidates with very different outlooks for the future of the Turkish Republic as an existential contest that would determine what the next centennial of the Republic would, could, would actually begin with. And in that sense, uh, had Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu won, we would have gone in a more democratic, possibly a bit more liberal direction and probably on a, on a path which was uh, closer or which adhered more to the uh, original intentions of the founders of the Republic and particularly its main founder, Mustafa Kemal 
Atatürk, the first, the first president, modernist, rationalist, pro-Western, and uh, and and also, of course, a nationalist. As opposed to that, the um, the the uh, vision that Mr. Erdogan presented, particularly with his choice of partners in uh, in the parliamentary elections, was um, a more conservative, certainly much more nationalist and uh, a civilizationalist. Uh, approach to things and probably uh, would not be in total harmony with the original intent of the of the republic's founders in that sense that it's in that sense that many many commentators believe that this was a decisive election in view of where the republic was was going to go and it's pre- and also that was one of the reasons why it was such a bitterly contested uh, contested election how did it get so bad in Turkey? And I know that's a broad question, but I ask because Erdogan has been around for now 20 years and he was prime minister first and now he's president. And he was a partner for the United States for a very long time and a trusted NATO partner as well. I dare I say he was quite moderate at the outset. What changed for Turkey to see the day that it's seeing today? Well, there are a lot of reasons, and uh, one one uh, line of uh, commenting or thinking about Erdogan that I will not adhere to is the following: Did he always have ulterior motives? It's no, and I don't really see anyone asking this question of Viktor Orban, who was the poster child of liberal democracy in Hungary in 1980, back in 1989. So instead of looking at intentions and stuff, and of course, Mr. Erdogan comes from a, from a tradition that is not particularly known for its uh, liberal democratic inclinations. I think the, the best, the better way of looking at things is, uh, is a political way. And in that sense, the first uh, period, uh, I mean, you can divide AKP's 20 years in at least three uh, different terms. And in the first one, the uh, task was consolidation of power and for the consolidation of power in the context of the 2000s, when, as your question implies, there was a very um, romantic view of what quote-unquote moderate Islam would do or could do. And Turkey was uh, a candidate for EU membership, and uh, these guys seemed intent to go ahead and pursue in pursuit of that that goal. Uh, That was, if you will, the liberal uh, period of AKP rule. Everything worked. Uh, a lot of reforms were made in favor of uh, EU membership. The economy was booming because they have inherited actually a pretty good uh, stabilization and growth program from the previous government. And so every and, and then the uh, entire world was looking up to Turkey, you know, uh, as a model of a predominantly Muslim country, which could actually bring an a party with an Islamist pedigree into power without necessarily thinking of that uh, motto or of that uh, phrase, you know, one man, one vote, one time. And after all, and and also people tend to forget that Turkey has actually been conducting fairly decent elections since 1950, whenever the military didn't take over. 
Now, I would argue that the opposition in Turkey, instead of um, looking at this new reality, uh, a party with an Islamist pedigree being in power, pursuing a westernization program, instead of fighting them politically, they chose, in my judgment, to fight them uh, administratively and bureaucratically, meaning they relied on the judiciary and the military to oppose oppose, uh, the AKP rule. And on the, uh, along that line, they made a lot of mistakes in my judgment. But that also gave Mr. Erdogan a, a sense that uh, the opposition would not play fairly. The same thing can be said from his perspective, that is, uh, about relations with the European Union. I mean, Turkey signed, Turkey's uh, negotiations with the European began on the 3rd of October. And almost before the ink was dry already on the, on the paper, uh, Mrs. Merkel, who was in power, expressed her, 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 her sentiment or her, her opinion that she really didn't think Turkey belonged as a member in the European Union. A year later, Mr. Sarkozy comes and he still, he doesn't think that Turkey belongs in the European Union. And the French basically suspend five articles that need to be negotiated by an applicant to the European Union saying that if they pass, if they are concluded, they might lead to membership, which is precisely what the negotiations were being conducted for. So that also gave Mr. Erdogan a sense that the European Union would not play fairly with him as well. I, I don't wish to be misunderstood. Wherever we are now in the third phase of Erdogan or AKP rule, we are mostly responsible, but the context also matters. That's the, that's the argument I'm making. Then when the military tried to um, stop the election of Mr. Erdogan's uh, uh, political friend, a uh, member of his party, his foreign minister, Abdullah Gül, from becoming president, then I guess the gloves were off and Mr. Erdogan relying on the, on, on a group called the Gülenes, who were at the time his allies, basically uh, fought the established uh, power structure in the country at the center of which were the military. And we have seen some mock trials, uh, kangaroo trials and stuff. And uh, already the much weakened grip of the military in Turkish politics has been totally, uh, I guess, destroyed by the time we reached the uh, second phase in earnest, I think. And that came after a big reform of or, or, uh, many of 26 amendments to our constitution, which effectively ended up turning our judiciary into an extension of the executive. And that also was with the help of the Gülenis, who were well entrenched in the, in the judiciary. So the uh, the shift towards a much less democratic, much less liberal politics began after 2008, 2007, 2008. In the meantime, a court case uh, to close the party down failed. That also hardened their position. And then uh, came the Gezi events, which was part, in my judgment, of the wave of protest movements like... Um, Occupy Wall Street, uh, Arab Spring, uh, Hong Kong Umbrella Movement, uh, the um, movements in the uh, demonstrations in Greece, in Chile, in Italy, in France, everywhere. And uh, the response on the part of Mr. Erdogan has been very harsh in suppressing that uh, protest movement. And to this day, 
that issue has not yet has not been closed properly. And then came the um, coup attempt of uh, 15 July 2016, and that uh, with the emergency rule declared it, uh, in the wake of that of that attempted coup. Uh, things have toughened up. A lot of people were sent to jail. A lot of people who had nothing to do with the coup have been uh, deprived of their jobs, have been fired with, with no prospects of returning, and then on and on. And, and it's in the wake of, um, of that coup attempt that Turkey made the transformation to a presidential system which lacked proper or fundamental checks and balances against the power uh, of the executive. And it is in that system that we have held two presidential elections, one in 2018 and one in 2023. And that basically consolidated both, I think, the system and uh, Mr. Erdogan's rule. In this election specifically, what's interesting is, well, I guess what I found interesting is you saying that you didn't quite have much hope after the first round. and. Yeah. It's, it, it's because in the United States, at least, a lot of Western journalists, the way they were reporting it was with a lot of buzz and jazz that this could may, possibly be the end of Erdogan's time. The, just the fact that Turkey was heading to a runoff election, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's never happened in history, was enough of inspiration. So what was the opposition candidate's strategy to secure some 45% of the votes uh, in that first round? Well, uh, to begin with, I mean, it was really before the first round that everybody was as enthusiastic as you suggested, uh, which is why uh, some, what I found personally, very subjectively found, condescending pieces were written afterwards, uh, arguing that hope was not strategy. We all know hope is not strategy, but neither is condescension critique. Uh, so it, 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 the, the uh, analysis or the post-mortem of these elections still requires some more time for us all to digest what had happened. Did Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu have a strategy to the extent that he may have had a strategy? By the way, personally, I was not, I did not think he was the either the best or the right candidate uh, for this election. But of course, once the candidacy was um, Locked up by him, I did. I did support his candidacy. Uh, he tried to uh, come up with a very inclusive uh, narrative, much calmer in tone, uh, much more unifying in its messages. Uh, and his symbol was, you know, a heart that you make with your fingers, and uh, that uh, obviously did not work. And uh, the fact that the main Kurdish, pro-Kurdish party supported his candidacy and they did not feel their own candidate was abused by the um, Erdogan camp. And they argued, and it seems to have made a lot of inroads into the conservative Anatolian, among the conservative Anatolian electorates, that it was basically the CHP or the nation alliance, as, as since this was, the, Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu was supported by an alliance of six parties. They were in cohorts with PKK, which is which is a terrorist organization recognized as such by the U.S. and by the European Union as well. 
And that seemed to have made a dent. Secondly, obviously, the um, in retrospect, it is obvious that instead of uh, zeroing in on very few messages, the opposition had too many messages, uh, and that may have been confusing. And obviously, and evidently, it was unable to actually reach out to um, to the conservative constituents that they were that they were trying to lure towards themselves. It must also be in fairness mentioned that the playing field was very uneven, that the traditional media is almost totally controlled by pro-government powers or by, by, by Mr. Erdogan. Therefore, you did not really have access to those media outlets that most people in the country actually get their news from. The um, resources of the state were used uh, by ministers who have run as candidates for the parliament. So in a way, this was, I mean, not in a way, but this was not a fair uh, contest. Uh, But that, I think, goes only so far to explain why the opposition lost. Uh, You've got to look at what the opposition did or did not do correctly. And those are the the ones that I mentioned are some of those that were, that hit me, that strike me as uh, most, as most important. In addition to, again, in the fact that obviously the candidate was not that attractive for uh, a significant segment of the Turkish population. And I'm sure you're going to ask this question in spite of the fact that the the elections have taken place in the middle of an economic crisis and uh, only three months after a devastating earthquake hit about 11 provinces and claimed over 50,000 lives. I was going to ask that, but I'm going to ask a different one now, which is... That after the first round of elections, Kilic Taralu did try to salvage his campaign, and he changed his tenor, began an anti-refugee campaign, I think at several points vowing to send all refugees back home. He also ruled out peace talks with the PKK. So do you think that was too little too late, or perhaps even that that strategy might have backfired at the round two stage? Did it maybe isolate voters or prevent some voters from even going and voting the second round who would have voted otherwise for the opposition? Look, I mean, I maybe too little, too late, but that's not even the best part of it. The first of all, uh, CHP always suggested that they would, in with an accord, on, on top of an accord with the Bashar al-Assad government in Syria, would send the refugees back. So sending the refugees back was not really a big change. What was changed? What was changed, of course, was the tone of the rhetoric. The fact that they allied themselves with uh, with an extremely uh, vociferous uh, critique of uh, the presence of refugees, who probably exaggerates the numbers of uh, formal and informal refugees that are actually in the country, an extreme nationalist, Umit uh, Özdar. Who has who is not just against the refugees, but also has pronounced himself. Uh, he says against the PKK, but I suppose the Kurds saw it maybe as anti-Kurdish either. But I don't want to put words in his mouth. And uh, you know when um, you have um, when you have changed so drastically your narrative from one day to the next. Uh, I guess you do have a credibility problem as well. 
I think a lot of Kurds were offended by the association with Mr. Ozda and with the um, with the appropriation of such a harsh language. And uh, some of them did not, I mean, I guess some of them did not go back to the polls. Uh, about 325,000 less people went to the polls in Istanbul. And it is estimated that about uh, a, a, a good chunk of those, a million Istanbulites who did not go to the polls in the first round also were Kurdish. So um, that didn't work. I mean, ultimately, uh, or maybe you can say it did work because it raised Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu's share of the vote to 48%. And Mr. Erdogan got, got 52%. But it was probably, again, as you said, maybe too little too late or not very convincing. Uh, so in my judgment, uh, by the second round, the um, fate or the result of the elections were uh, basically a foregone conclusion. But I must also say that the, the in-between period, between the first and second rounds, also we witnessed uh, harsh rhetoric. In the first round, in for the first round, uh, Mr. Erdogan used uh, videos that were, um, uh, what do you call it, doctored. I mean, clips were added or figures were added to the um, to the main videos that Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu used to give his messages at the, at the beginning. So at any rate, the, the shift didn't work. To repeat a point I made earlier, the campaign was not uh, waged under conditions of equality. It was pretty unfair. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. 
therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. 
So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And then back to your point about the botched response to the earthquake earlier this year and also the struggling economy. I mean, these are the dual factors that Western reporters have reported on as a reason for there to be hope that the opposition candidate might win and that didn't end up being the result. So what was it that Erdogan supporters saw in Erdogan at the end when the economy is struggling in a way that it hasn't before? There's been 20 years of his rule, and it seems like people have gotten tired of it. Why Why the support and why the numbers that he received in the polls? Well, in, in answering a question, a deputy from uh, Mr. Erdogan's party when she was asked, uh, well, you know, 20 years in power, and she rightly said, well, Merkel served for 20 years as well. Um, So, yes, because of the uh, association with um, authoritarianism, uh, this 20-year thing is being made a big deal out of. It's a long time. But first for the economy, it appears that the economic crisis so far hit metropolitan areas where uh, skilled, educated, professional middle classes live, along with, of course, the poor and the lower middle classes, far more harshly than um, most of the provinces in the heartland uh, where Mr. Erdogan gets most of his support. That's one thing. Secondly, a lot of people in Turkey depend on handouts by the state, And the AKP had done a good job of convincing those people that if they were to lose power, that uh, these people who depended on state largesse would lose those rights or they would present those as privileges. But it wasn't the party that did these things. It is basically the Turkish social security network that uh, makes that possible. And thirdly, uh, I think the the, um, opposition could not convince the public that they were really capable of solving Turkey's economic problems. There were six parties. Will there be united? Will there be more than one voice? Will they step on each other's toes? May have been a, a problem as well. But at the end of the day, uh, contrary to many people's uh, expectations or, or, or uh, evaluations or judgments, people did not vote for economic reasons. That's what, that's what it looks like. We'll find out more about, about those. The loyalty to Mr. Erdogan was phenomenal. Uh, it is interesting perhaps to note for your listeners that whereas from 2018 to 2023, Mr. Erdogan's party lost seven points, Mr. Erdogan in the first round only lost 
two and a half points. And in the second round, he recovered the 52% that he received back in 2018. So a lot of the vote was not along party lines, but along the lines of loyalty to Mr. Erdogan in person, because he convinced his public that he stands for their rights. And he also convinced them that, yes, there was an economic crisis, but although he's responsible for it, he is the one who could actually who could actually solve it. And the same, a similar thing, it seems, happened in the, um, in the uh, earthquake zone. He promised that he would build, within a year, new homes for those who were victims of the earthquake. He would make them pay for it. And, the, and the, Mr. Kulishtarolu went to the same place and said, no, 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 we will pay for it and we will give you free housing. I think the, the public there chose to um, believe Mr. Erdogan's promise although I really doubt that within a year they can have a roof over their heads, uh, rather than Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu. Again, personalities and records and um, whether or not you had faith in one or the other, those, those, really, made, those really made a difference. And finally, perhaps it needs to be said, um, the places that the earthquake hit were Erdogan's strongholds. And I think in eight out of the 11 provinces, he still came ahead. And you said that he advertised himself as the man who can save the economy. What do we know about his economic plan to save the economy? Is there anything that's out there? Yeah, well, uh, Mr. Erdogan has this unorthodox approach to the question of inflation. He believes that high interest rates are what cause inflation. So if you lower the interest rates, the inflation rate is supposed to go down. That really defies most of known economic thought. Uh, and obviously, with, at, with interest rates at 8.5% and the inflation rate hovering around 45-50%, it didn't seem to have worked. But he has said, I think, on CNN International, that he would continue believing on, in the absolute truth of that theory, and that he would continue with this with this unorthodox approach to, to to economic management. On the other hand, we're now hearing that he is considering to bring back some of the more orthodox uh, administrators of, of economic policy back, and he seems to be he seems to be trying to persuade Mr. Mehmet Shimshek, uh, who works for a for a financial company in London now, who used to be in charge of the Turkish economy to come back and to take the reins of the economy again. And his name presumably would give more credibility to to Turkish economic management, which at this point has been totally distrusted by international markets. Whether or not that will happen, whether or not we'll go back to uh, more orthodox policies, I really do not know. We do have uh, municipal elections 10 months from now, and uh, anything that will smack of uh, a stabilization program, belt tightening and stuff, would not go down well with the electorate, should be the the thinking of the the power. Uh, We'll see. Again, I cannot... I cannot vouch for a return to more orthodox policies based on his uh, pronouncements. And seeing as a skilled, educated middle class, as you say, 
have been disproportionately hurt by the economic downturn. Will we see a similar type of brain drain that we saw after the failed military coup in 2016? Or This is what many people think will happen, that um, the brain drain will continue, skilled middle-class families uh, or will, if they can get a visa, will leave the country. Uh, It hasn't started yet. Getting a visa is very difficult these days. In fact, there is almost, uh, if not an embargo, definitely the European Union makes it very difficult for ordinary Turks to get a visa, fearing, I suppose, that they might wish to settle there illegally. Uh, but uh, a brain drain is definitely in the what, what many what many people expect is for that to happen. And since the failed military coup in 2016, President Erdogan has abolished the post of prime minister. He's consolidated power. Do you anticipate Turkey continuing to slide into further autocracy under Erdogan or adopt you know other anti-democratic measures over this next term? And what what would that look like? Well, I mean, I, I just said that that is once we move to a presidential system with a constitutional amendment, which went to a referendum in 2017, uh, we had two elections. And I think the 20, 2023 elections are a consolidation of that system. And in that system, there was no need for a prime minister. It was not like the um, it was not like the French system, which does have a, both a president and a prime minister. So it was more like the American system, where the chief executive is, uh, with the chief executive is the president himself, or if any woman is elected herself. With with with, now, with one difference uh, being that uh, in the Turkish system as it was designed and it has not yet been perfected i think we do have a serious governance problem because all authority resides in the president in the president's hands and therefore in the presidential palace um we don't really have much uh, we don't really have checks and balances the parliament doesn't really especially now that the uh, because the uh, majority belongs to the ruling coalition there's no point in thinking that the parliament may actually act autonomously from the from the presidency it will be more of a rubber stamp thing and that of course that kind of centralization of power and decision making uh, with no checks and balances with the media controlled and uh, with the judiciary not necessarily acting very independently yeah you do have the attributes of a more authoritarian system but but it's electoral it's electoral but it, what should we expect in the next five years? Will there be more slipping into autocracy? It's difficult to say uh, because, um, I mean, one should not become despondent because one particular political outcome did not materialize. There is no doubt that the Turkish society, particularly its youth, wish change. One way of looking at the election results is that, uh, again, despite all the pressures, irregularities and stuff, was that the uh, candidate for the opposition did not inspire much confidence among a majority of the public and particularly the youth that he was the bearer or the agent of the kinds of change that they wanted. Uh, Now, the demand for change is going to remain there. Every single survey, every single analytical piece, every single uh, 
quantitatively based analysis of Turkish society and its aspirations suggests that it wants change. It may not necessarily know the, the kind of change it wants and the kind of direction it wants the change to take place, but it wants change. So what you need is uh, a political movement that can actually respond to those aspirations. And in that, it is now evident the opposition failed. And uh, um, there is now a very rather, rather loud discussion whether this was a function of the candidate's person or it was the function of uh, the opposition's messages, the way they organized their campaign, and also uh, the fact that they have not really taken the necessary measures to... Uh, to secure the sanctity of, of the vote and uh, and to secure actually that the votes that were tallied were um, all counted and that there were no additional um, voters. I mean, what we discovered was that about 750,000 people who have bought houses in Turkey were given citizenship, had the right to vote. They, the opposition should have known this and to oppose this well in advance of the of the of the election days. So a lot of things, I think, that the um, opposition, maybe because it became very complacent and therefore lethargic that, you know, they were going to win no matter what, should have done that, did not do. So a lot of things have contributed to this. Plus, I think the alliance's um, members did not work very hard. Uh, Mr. Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu's candidacy was not accepted by the second by the constituents of the second largest party in the nation coalition so all of that has added up and i think a fairly good chance uh, for uh, changing governments and changing the management of turkey's politics was missed so you start anew hopefully a fresh start and uh, the sec the the, the um, junior partner in Nation Alliance, uh, EE Party of Mrs. Akshener, will have its uh, Congress to elect its new administration on the 4th, 24th of June. And sometime by mid-July, I think the CHP, the main opposition party, is going to have its own Congress. Whether if if Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu does not re- resign, I suppose he will be a candidate. But I also expect that he will be challenged by the very popular mayor of Istanbul. So let's zoom out for a second as well. What does five more years of Erdogan mean for Turkey-U.S. relations and Turkey-NATO relations? Well, you know, President Biden called President Erdogan to congratulate him. It appears that they have had at least a little chat over the F-16s that await Senate approval to be sold to Turkey. And uh, President Biden mentioned, obviously, that they would like to see the accession of Sweden finalized in the Vilnius summit of NATO, which will come in July. Uh, Mr. Erdogan has already said on a number of occasions that he didn't think Sweden had fulfilled all of Turkey's demands vis-a-vis PKK terrorism. And apparently there was a projection of the PKK flag over the Swedish parliament uh, right before the elections. So Turkish authorities protested that. If the uh, Swedish accession doesn't go through, and then if the F-16s are a quid pro quo for that, 
then I guess the tense relations will continue to remain tense and even more problematic than they are today. Turkey also has um, concerns that it has expressed uh, on numerous occasions uh, about uh, U.S. support for the Kurdish military forces in the in the north of Syria, which are an extension of the PKK, which is, of course, Turkey's nemesis. And the two sides don't seem to find a common ground to discuss this matter either. And at some, I mean, since the Kurds are fighting against ISIS, but I understand that Turkey had also done a lot to um, fight ISIS. And in fact, they just killed the Turkish military about a month ago, killed the current or the then current a leader of uh, ISIS as well. So we'll see how things will go. I mean, contrary to what you've uh, implied in an earlier question, yes, Turkey does become uh, a problematic ally when it comes to the political realm of NATO because it has certain demands that it wants fulfilled. On the, on the military side, I think Turkey does quite well. It is a good ally. It does participate in all exercises. It does what is demanded of it. So it's a more complicated picture than before. And of course, there is also the issue of S-400s that Turkey bought from Russia, which of course NATO and the United States cannot accept the deployment of. Uh, because they would interfere with, uh, they could, they could actually spy on F- F-35s, which is why Turkey was kicked out of the F-35 program. Uh, whether or not Turkey will change its position on Russia-Ukraine, honestly, I think more of the same. Uh, that is, uh, Turkey will continue to supply Ukraine, will continue to implement the um, Montreux Convention so that no Russian battleships could actually cross the Straits and go to the Black Sea, which would have tilted the the conditions in the military balance in the Black Sea in favor of Russia. On the other hand, it will not join the sanctions regime against Russia, will continue to trade with Russia, and and will continue to have... uh, a very interesting relation with Mr. Putin, which annoys some of the Western partners. Maybe, maybe I should have mentioned, I should have touched upon the European Union, if you want that. Oh, just EU-Turkey relations? Well, I mean, the Telegraph newspaper in, in, in Britain, I think, basically, has been very blunt and said, well, the EU is very happy that Mr. Erdogan won. So that doesn't square well with um, the presumed stance of the European Union for democracy, rule of law, human rights, and all that. So you may wonder why. One reason is it's they know how to deal with them, and they can continue transactional relations with them. And secondly, it basically, I mean, if, if, Mr. if this regime stays in place and for another five years, the uh, already comatose Turkey-EU candidacy, I mean Turkish candidacy in the European Union, will basically be frozen till eternity. <laughs> and that may be something that most of the major um, members of the European Union currently desire. Well, and what that will do to the domestic politics of Turkey remains an, an important question in my view. And um, going back to the first question you asked, or the way I answered your first question, uh, which direction does Turkey take? 
uh, in its quest for modernization and in its quest to become a regional power which can have autonomous an autonomous foreign policy and does not feel beholden to the preferences or the directions of its Western partners. These are not just Turkey-specific questions, or these are not questions um, that only Turks need to ask. I think these are questions that Turkey's partners, especially in the West, need to ask as well. And uh, I personally have been in for suggesting that we need to, that the two sides that is European Union and Turkey and maybe the European when maybe the United States and Turkey would have to have a clean page on which to start and they would have to change their rhetoric does is there such a will on the part of Turkey is there such a will on the part of the US and the European Union these are the questions that will need to be answered and uh, we may not have to wait for too long to figure out uh, which direction these things are going to go And uh, I'll finish with reiterating my uh, earlier point. The Turkish society wants change. It has not been convinced by the promises of change that the opposition has proposed. I would still think that 48% of the Turkish electorate voted for the opposition. That is basically very consistent, by the way. In 2014, in 2018, and in 2023, this was the division in the votes, 48 to 52. And um, that suggests it is a very divided society in its aspirations. It can yet, the two sides can yet speak with one another, talk one to one another, and begin to understand one another. But that would necessitate that we have a political class that does not invest in further polarizing the country. That is the challenge for the future. And that is also something, as I said, uh, that Turkey's Western allies will need to think more seriously about and perhaps see that 48% as the future picture of Turkey rather than its past. Mr. Soli Ozel, thank you very much. I thank you. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. This podcast is edited by Jen Pachahal, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.